there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I'd like to speak to you today about some of the work ideas and what the words mean. Maybe if we can delve a little deeper into some of the meanings of these words, what some of the meanings of the terms that the work uses, will help us to understand better our position and how we may be able to alter our position a little bit, raise our level of being, increase our understanding, increase our awareness of what the work teaches, and thereby give us a better opportunity to apply these ideas. The main thing about this work, the thing that's lacking, in my opinion, uh, from my experience with people and with this work, the main thing that's lacking is our ability to practically apply the ideas that we intellectually accept. When the work speaks of the hypnotism of life, we really need to understand what it means. Our addiction to drama takes us to imaginary extremes, like the body snatchers. Remember that movie, The Body Snatchers, where aliens from another planet came and they were going to take over the planet. And for them to take over the planet, what they did is they replaced each human being. And how they did it was they... They set a pod, uh, kind of like a huge watermelon pod or seed, next to the person. And when the person fell asleep, they were then replaced by this, this duplicate, actually, this other thing, this alien that was devoid of any human emotion because it was an alien, because it was something else. The person was gone. And what was left in its place was a, a duplicate, a body double of the human being that was there. And so we think of the hypnotism of life, and we may think of some extreme thing like that, this big drama. Oh, it's like the body snatchers. or It's like something is going to, to, to happen and take us over. And we miss the subtle taste of esoteric teachings. And it's just like the same thing as, as if we have a dish, if we prepare a soup or, a, or some kind of a dish, and we have too much garlic or too much pepper or too much salt in the dish. What happens is it masks the subtle taste. All we can, all we can taste is the, the garlic or the pepper or the salt. And that overpowers us. And so in a sense, we're in that position in life. So the hypnotism of life, as the work calls it, can really be understood in another way. So it may be the hypnotism of life, but when it touches us and how we interpret it or how we react to the hypnotism of life is better understood as suggestibility. And so this, today I'd like to talk to you about the, what I call the suggestibility zone. There's an actual zone that we can get into or that we live in that I call the suggestibility zone. So... Uh, observe, for example, how easily we become, how easily we 
are influenced, say, let me see, like CNN, people watch CNN news or whatever, anything you watch on TV and begin to give, we begin to give it our force. And then what happens after that? Well, we begin to share it with other people. What does that look like? Well, that looks like, did you hear that what, that what happened to so-and-so in the news? And the person says, oh, no, what was it? And then they relate the story. Why bother? They don't even know if that really happened or not. All they know is that that's what CNN reported. Is it true? Is it, a, a, is it an objective point of view? Is it a direct perspective on your part? No, it's filtered through however many, it's filtered through the eyes of the reporter. It's filtered through the editor who said, well, you'll have to change this. You'll have to change that. It's filtered through the, the film editor who cut the tape and changed things around so that he cut out some of the important things that would have been important to your understanding. But it wasn't, it was, CNN wasn't doing it as a matter of giving you understanding. It was a matter of creating this drama, this body snatchers drama that would suck us in, that would entertain us, that would draw us in, that would get us emotionally hooked. And so we begin to give our force to it. And we're not really giving our force to it. This is the funny thing. We're not giving our force to it all. It's attracting our force. It's sucking our energy. It's taking our life force away from us. And then we begin to infect, literally infect other people with that. And how can we infect other people with that? Well, they live in the suggestibility zone as well. So it's very easy for them because they're suggestible. A friend listens to what someone says and gets stuck on that point of view. So I have a friend who would say, well, this and that, and we were developing a relationship. And then someone else would come along and say, well, he's this or he's that. And this person would then get upset and say, well, but is that right? I don't know. If, I don't see it that way, but maybe it is that way. And then come to me and say, well, uh, is that right? Are you like that? Uh, so-and-so says you're like that. So-and-so says you do that. And then they would be stuck on so-and-so's point of view. And then they would seek the opposite point of view, like coming to me and saying, well, is that true? Is that really what you're like? Or is that what so-and-so thinks and says? Is that just their perspective? And if I would give my perspective, then this person would get stuck on that. So it was a constant pendulum swing of back and forth. Look at how you do that in your own life. Someone suggests to you that this person that you're developing a relationship with might not be the person that you think he or she is. So then you seek the opposite point of view to see if you can somehow balance out what that person has just said. And so you swing back and forth on the pendulum. Oh, how nice. It's good to see you. We, we, had, we just had a visitor come in who I haven't seen in days, and so I'm pretty excited about that. But um, it's wonderful. So um, we're back to we're back to that. So, for example, I've met this person here in Macedonia, and we instantly hit it off. We had this really cool um, connection, where an emotional connection, where we just kind of understood each other and kind of communicated with each other, even though we didn't really speak the same language. Although she speaks a lot more English than I speak Macedonian, but. Uh, the great thing was is that there was just this instant understanding and she could actually speak Macedonian and through the gestures and her tone of voice and watching her eyes and just knowing something 
about who she was, I knew what she was talking about. I mean, I really knew. And, and she tested me. She said, well, what was I saying then? And I told her and she shook her head. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You got it. So it was like that. Well, as we developed our relationship, I'm sure other people could come to her and say, well, he's not that way at all. He's some other way. And she, to the degree that her relationship with me was not conscious, to that degree, she could be swayed or moved in the way that she would see me. So it's like this. If you know someone, if you know yourself to a certain degree, and through knowing yourself, you know another person to a certain degree. If someone comes to you and says, well, that person is a liar, but your experience, your conscious experience of that person is that they are not liars, that they are not deceivers, then you cannot be swayed by what that person says because you have gotten out of the suggestibility zone. And what has gotten you out of the suggestibility zone? Your experience of that person, your conscious experience of that person. So the friend who listens to what someone else says and then gets stuck on their point of view about the person they're developing a relationship with is in the suggestibility zone. But as they develop a conscious relationship with the person, then when someone else suggests something that isn't true, they can't be swayed so easily by that because they have gotten out of the suggestibility zone. So another example is fashion advertising and propaganda. They all prey on our greatest weakness as human beings, which is really not human beings, but as machines. And the greatest weakness that we have as, as machines is our suggestibility. Our suggestibility is what leaves us open to the hypnotism of life. It makes it so the hypnotism of life then has an inroad into us. It can come through the five senses and without us really knowing it, because it comes right into the suggestibility zone where we are living, it begins to sway us and move us. And before we know it, we now have a new opinion. Before we know it, we now have a new fashion. I was downtown the other day with Mele, and it was really funny. There were these young girls who were walking along, and one of them was wearing these earrings, and the, and, and the earrings were discs, and the discs were huge. They were like, it was like, they were like sand dollars. They were so big. They were probably three, three and a half inches in diameter. Uh, no, yeah, in, in diameter, not circumference. And they looked absolutely absurd, ridiculous. And I looked at the person who was wearing them and I thought, no one would wear those in public. No one would do that. And then came into view one of the other girls that she was walking with and she also was wearing the same earrings because people won't do something that like that alone. And you remember when you were in high school and some of the crazy things that you used to wear and some of the crazy things that you used to do, but you never did it alone. There was always one other person who did it with you. And that's because of our suggestibility. We want, we want to be independent. We want to be unique. So what we do is we go out there and we find somebody who will be unique with us. And then our uniqueness is all gone because now we share it with this other person and it's not unique at all and it's not independent at all. Again, it's the suggestibility zone and that's what I mean about fashion. Advertising is the same thing. Look at the incredible things that people do because of advertising. 
You advertise these socks, everybody's got to have these socks. You advertise these shoes, everybody's got to have these shoes. You advertise this cologne, everybody runs after that cologne. This work, nobody wants to do. Yeah, but this work, nobody wants to do. <laughs> but I don't advertise this work, so it doesn't matter because I know nobody wants to do it. This work has to be, people have to come to this work through magnetic center. They can't come to this work through attraction, because if attraction brings them to this work, they will fail unless they find magnetic center before they lose their attraction. It looks good, but what attracts us is the false personality, is in the false personality. Oh, yes, I could use this work to better my life. Oh, yes, I could use this work to get more money. Oh, yes, I could use this work to have better relationships. And that's fine for a while. But if your sincerity and valuation doesn't kick in before that wears off, you will lose this work and it will go nowhere for you. It will finally turn into A influence and you will lose it altogether. If you can keep it B influence for a while and it can enter the magnetic center and it can enter your intellect and you can start to have some valuation in your emotional center, if that can happen, then you have a possibility of sincerely, genuinely making a place inside of yourself where the work is a seed is implanted in you and it can begin to grow and develop if you nourish it, if you do the things that are needed, if you do the things that have to be done in order to make that happen. If not, well, then it doesn't work. <clears throat> so we also have, the, the other example we have is propaganda. Governments all over the world tell you this and tell you that. Look at how absurd it is. Look at any election that you have ever seen. You have two or three liars who tell you that they're going to give you the world, who tell you that they're going to make everything perfect, who tell you that they're going to put a, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage, and who tell you that you're going to have a great job and they're going to end poverty and they're going to end sickness and they're going to end this and they're going to end that. And for thousands of years, history has proved beyond any shadow of a doubt that they can't do it, that they don't do it, that they won't do it. But because we're suggestible, we keep on believing that this time they're going to do it. And it's absolutely absurd if you could become objective enough to step out of the suggestibility zone and look at it and observe it objectively rather than stay in the suggestibility zone and stay subjective to it and believe in it and be swept away by the fashion, the advertising, the propaganda, and the suggestibility of the whole thing, because, or the hypnotism of the whole thing, because we are suggestible. Now, what does suggestibility really do? Yes, I've said it's our greatest weakness. Suggestibility leads us to, imat to imitation. What that means is we imitate. We imitate what we see other people do. You see someone else wearing these jeans and you look at them and you say, wow, if I had a pair of jeans like that, everybody would be looking at me and admiring me the way I'm looking at that person and admiring that person. So we run out and somehow get those jeans, beg, borrow, or steal. We put those jeans on and we strut around for a while. And when nobody looks at us or feels the same way about us that we felt about that other person. We never fit in the jeans the way they do. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> they look great in them. We put them on as we look so-so. So all of these crazy things that people do, these crazy fashions that people wear in twos, they'd never wear those things alone. And we would never wear those things alone either. So we're lost in that. 
Suggestibility leads to imitation. If we could remember ourselves, we wouldn't be suggestible in this way. In other words, if you could be a little more conscious, just that little bit of consciousness would start to take you out of the suggestibility zone. It would be like leaving one room and going into another room. At first, you're in the doorway. You're not really in this room, but you're not really in that room either. You're in between. But even that, when you begin to remember yourself, even that in-between stage gives you a little bit of freedom. It starts to take you out of the suggestibility zone. I was talking to a friend today and I said, you have one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. And you won't make a decision to be on the dock or to be on the boat. So as the boat drifts away, you're hoping that you'll be left either on the dock or on the boat. But what I've found more often than not is you will end up in the water and swimming for it or getting wet or trying to get either on the boat or on the dock from the water, which of course is a lot harder than making a decision and just going on the dock or in or on the boat. And what we do, even when you're in the water, you still have to make a decision. Am I going to swim to the dock or am I going to swim to the boat? And you try and decide, which one can I make? Which one can I do? And you could drown in the water trying to make a decision. So what I say is make your decision and do the best you can. If you were wrong, you can always make another decision. If you miss the boat, maybe there'll be another boat sometime. If there's not, then you live with it. And that's that. Then you find a way to make your life on the dock. But if we could remember ourselves, we would not be as suggestible in this way. We'd see it coming as suggestion, and we'd stay out of its way or get out of its way the same way if we see a car coming when crossing the street. We see that approaching car, we judge its speed, we judge where we are, and we realize if we step out in front of this car now, it's going to hit us. This is the exact same thing as we begin to remember ourselves. It gives us a little space. It gives us a little space between the car, and ourselves so that we can make a decision that will keep us out of harm's way. This is the same thing. If you can begin to become, if you can begin to remember yourself a little bit, begin to become a little bit more objective, separate yourself from your suggestibility zone, then in that way, you can see the suggestions coming and you don't have to go with them. Note, when you're starting a friendship with someone, how one word from another changes your whole view of your potential friend. You have this potential friend just getting to know them. Someone else comes along and they say, did you know that that person blah, 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 and it's not so nice. And all of a sudden you have doubts and all of a sudden you start to look at this person in a new way. And it's not necessarily a good way because the suggestibility is not always good. As a matter of fact, more often than not, it's negative. And the reason it's negative is because we love our negative emotions. And because we love our negative emotions, we end up being negative more often than we end up being conscious. Consciousness, awareness takes effort. To become aware, to wake up, to remember yourself takes effort. To be negative takes no effort whatsoever. Anybody can do that. You could be negative in your sleep. As a matter of fact, the only time you can't be negative is when you're awake. So if you're not going to be negative, you're going to have to wake up. And the minute you start to go to sleep again, then you've entered the suggestibility zone. And now someone can whisper in your ear and you can become negative very easily. 
doubt enters the suggestibility zone. And once doubt enters the suggestibility zone, you begin to be poisoned by the doubt. You begin to have doubts about this budding friendship with someone else. And it will spoil it unless you can somehow remember yourself, pull yourself out of the suggestibility zone, pull yourself up out of the negativity, and begin to be a little more objective. Recently, someone questioned another person about my intentions and my methods. The less conscious our relationship, the larger the suggestibility zone is. So the less conscious your relationship is with any other human being, the larger the suggestibility zone, the easier it is for someone to speak negativity or speak doubt into your life, into your awareness, and the easier it will be for you to then go down into negative emotions. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with negative emotions. Enjoy them unless you wish to develop. If you wish to develop, then negative emotions are not good for you. It's like I've said before. If you want to go, oh, well, this isn't going to work very well. If you want to go to a, a point on the map that is north of where you are, and there's a road that leads north and south where you are. If you take the wrong on-ramp onto that road and you end up going south instead of north, you're going the wrong way. Does it mean that south is wrong? No. It means that once you have made an aim, once you have made a goal, that determines right or wrong. Right? There is no right or wrong until you set a goal. When you set a goal, now you have right and wrong. Anything that takes you closer to that goal is right. Anything that takes you further away from that goal is wrong. And that's how that works. So as we move away from taking impressions mechanically, we start to see the turmoil that's introduced into our lives and into the lives of others via the suggestibility zone. As you begin to take impressions less mechanically, you see that when you are mechanical, all of this turmoil is introduced into your life, all this turmoil is introduced into the lives of others, and it comes directly through this this place that I've called the suggestibility zone. Is it an actual place? No, it's an actual state of unconsciousness. See, it's not even a state of consciousness. It's a state of unconsciousness. So this state of unconsciousness, this sleep state, this hypnagogic state, as it were, is where these things come in and where they act on us. Now, as we move away from taking impressions mechanically, then we begin to separate from the turmoil. Then we begin to separate from the people in our lives who are in that zone. And then we are no longer as vulnerable to their suggestions. We are no longer as vulnerable to the hypnotism of life. Does that mean we can't be blindsided? Oh, no. Oh, no. It can take us by surprise quite easily. All we have to do is go asleep for just go to sleep just for a moment. So Mila and I were sitting downtown today, having a outside enjoying the sun, having a coffee. He had a juice, and for one reason or another, first he took the I watched him do this whole thing. He had a magazine, and he said, "Oh, something about the magazine." And then he set the magazine on the table. The waiter came, gave him a glass and the juice. The waiter did not pour the juice; he just left the juice in the bottle. Mile took the lid off of the bottle, and then he looked at it, 
and he noticed that the bottle had to be shaken because there was sediment on the bottom, so the bottle had to be shaken. So he put the lid back on the bottle, and instead of shaking it, he turned it upside down and turned it back a couple of times, and then all of this started to mix. He took the lid off again, and he poured the juice into the glass. The glass filled up, and then he kept pouring. And the juice ran over the top of the glass and all over the magazine. And he looked at that, and he said, I guess I wasn't paying attention. I'm an idiot. And what was even better than that was the next thing he said. He said, the waiter gave me the wrong glass. And then he he said, oh, look, not only was I asleep, now I'm blaming someone else. And I said, that's right, Mile. And now you're working. Now you're seeing it. He caught himself in the process. And the first thing was, he said, I must have been asleep. And the second thing is he tried to justify himself by saying it was the waiter's fault. I must not have really been asleep. It was the waiter's fault. He brought me a glass that was too small. (laughs) Stupid waiter. (laughs) So we laughed about that. And I said, well, Mila, you know that's going to make it into the podcast. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. People everywhere are going to find out what an idiot I am. (laughs) So now we know. But you have to see, not that Mele's an idiot. You have to see that you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, that's hard, huh? Yeah. Is that for Steve? <laughs> I got to tell you, Steve, he's been wanting to do that for you for a long time. So in a partial state, even in a partial state of self-remembering, we begin to resist this incredible havoc of the moment. What is the havoc of the moment? The havoc of the moment is this torrent, this, this, this rainfall, this storm of ideas and hypnotism and, and impressions that are pounding on us like hail on a tin roof like hailstones on a tin roof, pouring down, making all this noise, busting up this, busting up that. And as we begin to even enter a partial state of self-remembering, we have the ability to resist that for that moment. We're no longer as excitable and easily swayed as we were. Have you ever noticed how excitable people are? Have you ever noticed how you, we, we, we walk downtown today and it's Sunday, so We walk downtown and the place is full. The cafes are full. People are sitting at all the tables. We couldn't even find a table anywhere. Well, it's never like that. It's never like, I'd never seen it like that before. Of course, it is like that at other times, but I'd never seen it like that before. It was the first Sunday afternoon that I was down there. Looked at all that and I noticed all the excitement. People being around each other and it was like it rubbed off on them. It was like a fire. It went here and then it jumped there and then it jumped there and everybody was excited and everybody was looking at this. Oh, look at the girls. Oh, look at the guys. Oh, look at this and oh, look at that. All the peacocks strutting around trying to find the, the you know, trying to attract the other opposite sex. I was watching the whole thing, sitting there smiling and Mila, of course, was watching the girls and sitting there not smiling so much. Oh, look at that one. Oh, look at that one. Of course, his wife wasn't there. So he got to look at all of them without a slap in the head. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mila. <laughs> I'm having trouble swallowing that again. Huh? Okay. 
So yeah, we were both watching. <laughs> don't blame that on really? me. I was watching you watching them. Uh-huh. Okay, so we were both watching, and that's a good point. Yes, we were both watching. I was watching people. The difference was I was watching myself as I watched the people. I was observing myself as I was observing the people. And that is separation from yourself, and that is proper self-observation. So I didn't go with what I saw. I was not attached to what I saw. I could stay where I was and let James sit in the chair and watch people, and I could watch the people, and I could watch Mele, and I could watch James without being in or attached to any of the things that I was watching. That is proper self-observation. That is proper separation. That is not judging, not condemning, but watching the whole scene as if you were watching interesting strangers and you were not in it. Since I am not James, since I am not Mele, since I am not any of the people that I was watching, I was not in that play. I was an observer. That is proper self-observation. So take that, coughing boy. (laughs) So this is what we're looking for, even this partial state of self-remembering. That gives us just a little bit of space to begin to resist the havoc of the moment. We're no longer as excitable and easily swayed. We're no longer suggestible. The hypnotism of life no longer bothers us or sways us or drags us around in the same way as it once did. We begin to have something in us that's not affected so much by life and the hypnotism of life, not affected so much as it was, as we were, when we were not in that state of self-remembering or that partial state of self-remembering. We are no longer in the suggestibility zone as fully, as completely. We back away from the precipice and we begin to look up and we begin to catch a glimpse of the rope above our head. This is the beginning for us. Maurice Nicole said, to catch the rope, we must jump. It amazes me how many people I meet who wish to count the strands in the rope. They wish to talk about where that rope may lead. They wish to study its texture and discuss with those other people who are watching. And they wanted to talk about who has already caught the rope and how they have climbed up it and how people in the past did it. But they don't jump themselves and get hold of the rope. Instead, they talk about all the people who did jump and catch the rope and how they, did, how they climbed up it, whether they climbed left hand over right or right hand over left, whether they had gloves on, whether they had help, whether the rope pulled them up or they pulled themselves up. And they discuss all these things and discuss all these things and discuss all these things without ever jumping up to grab the rope. It absolutely amazes me how many people get stuck in that. They sit, they discuss, and they study rather than pay the price. They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I talked to a fellow that I met here this uh, in this trip in Macedonia, and every time I see him, he has some new question. He wants to know, what is this? What is that? No matter how many answers I give him, it's never enough. He always has a new question. He always wants more knowledge. 
And this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is what it's written about in 2 Timothy 3, 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth because they do not apply what it is that they take in. If you do not apply what you take in, the knowledge rots and spoils, and it spoils you. And once you're spoiled, it takes a great deal of effort to get rid of that and to start to apply what little bit you may be able to garner or you may be able to salvage after everything that you've taken in. Mila and I were talking days, we walked along, and we were talking about this particular person, and he said, we went by where he worked, and I said, well, let's hurry by just in case he's in there. I don't want him coming out here and asking me more questions, and having more answers that he's not ever going to do anything with. And he said, yeah, he wants to know everything. I said, do you have libraries here? He said, yeah. I said, oh, he said, he should just buy an encyclopedia and know everything, and then it'll be done. And I said, well, if you have libraries here, he won't even have to go and buy the encyclopedias. He can just go to the library and read everything that's in the library. Then he'll know everything. And then he can sit around knowing everything. It'll go in his eyes and his ears and come out his mouth, and nothing will change in his life. It astounds me how many people do that and just that. They wait for some sudden and complete transformation and then claim enlightenment. There's a barber here in town. We call him the enlightened barber. And he knows everything there is to know. He can stick his finger in a glass of water and turn it to wine. Then he can pour that wine out and walk on it without getting his feet wet. This guy is enlightened. He can do anything. And as long as he thinks about himself that way, he's blocking himself from any further development but don't look at him and say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. That's an awful thing to do. Instead, look at yourself and see how the things that you think you know, the things that you think you're aware of, the things that you think you've got handled, how those very things block your further development. How the very things that you think you know, that you are a little more conscious, that you have this, that you have that, that you're a little better than those people who don't have that. Those are the things that block your further development. They're all looking for the master. They're all looking for the moment. They're all looking for the event rather than looking to the rope and jumping up now to get above our machine. This is what needs to happen. You need to jump up and grab that rope now and start to pull yourself above your machine. You've got to pull yourself out of that machine in the same way that you get out of your car, except that if your door doesn't open, and you only have a hole in the roof, you grab the rope and you pull yourself up out of the machine through the hole in the roof. If we can't, and if we don't remember ourselves, then we can't and we won't distinguish ourselves from life. We'll simply be absorbed into the organic film of life that's coating this planet. We have to somehow get some kind of separation even if it's just to see, I am not that. I am not that. If you believe in something apart from life's torrent of events as we sensually experience it, if you allow esoteric ideas a place in you, if you'll make effort accordingly, according to what those ideas teach you and instruct you to do, you may touch the third state of consciousness. The third state of consciousness is self-remembering, self-awareness, self-consciousness. 
After applying these ideas internally for many years, you'll get clear of the suggestibility zone. You'll no longer imitate others. No longer will you be drawn in and moved around by life's events like a rudderless ship in a rough sea, being tossed by the waves, being blown here and there by the wind. The keys are these. There is something higher than what we take ourselves to be. If we remember ourselves rightly, we will begin to touch real I, which is awaiting us, just above us. It's fully developed. It's fully capable. But we cannot enter into it because we're stuck in this machine. But we don't know that we're stuck in this machine. We take this machine as I. And because we take this machine as I, our sense of I, our feeling of I, our feeling of ourselves cannot enter our real I. This is our dilemma. This is one of the keys. Another one is we're under 48 orders of laws making our being heavy and dense. There are fewer laws above us. We can reach those laws. We can reach that by expanding our being, freeing us from the heavy bonds of this world. And this is something that we can do. But again, it lies above us. And where are we looking? We're looking into the world for answers. We're thinking that if we have more knowledge, then we'll be able to get out of this. We're thinking that somehow the answer is here. The answer is not here in this world through the senses. The actual answer lies above us. So it's our job to look above us, to catch the rope, to reach higher. There are higher centers. Another key is there are higher centers. They are fully awake, but we must begin to awaken in order to come under their influence. They will then begin to pull us upward into better states, into a clearer being. These are things that you need to think about. These are things upon which you need to meditate every day. Another key is this. Though we are mechanical, we can become more conscious. It lies above us, beyond the suggestibility zone. Our pride will hinder our development. Our pride will keep us from getting out of the suggestibility zone. Our pride will keep us from reaching what lies above us. Our pride will keep us from becoming conscious. Another key, just trying to obey the work, apart from self-love and other self-emotions, will be shown how to proceed. If you just begin to obey the work, apart from self-love and the other self-emotions, in other words, if you obey the work for the work's sake, not for your own sake, not to benefit yourself, not to be a Pharisee, so that somehow you look better or somehow you gain something in the world through the work. If you're willing to do that, obey the work apart from self-love, apart from self-emotions, apart from self-interest, you'll be shown how to proceed. Once you're shown how to proceed, it's up to you to proceed in that direction. And finally, if you can see the difference between influences created by life and those sown into life as seeds of transformation by those who have already awakened, 
then you may develop. Remember, many are called, but few are chosen. You can begin to remember yourself, escaping the suggestibility zone. Everything that you need is there. You must make the effort. Look up, see the rope, and as Maurice Nicole said, to catch the rope, we must jump. I invite you to look up, catch the rope, jump. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.